Hello and welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. Each week we have a new episode with founders or investors in the tech startup community. Our job is to ask questions and ask them about their career and find out bits of advice that they might be able to provide and generally get a feel for who they are, what they do and the company they work for. This week, we are delighted to have Johnny Pline on the show. Johnny started out as an accountant, and then he founded a business very quickly. And in a short period of time, he managed to launch a product, get a lot of traction, and go on Dragon's Den, which we talk about. And also, he was acquired by Global Savings Group. So this episode, we touch on that and his riding unicorns journey in general. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Johnny. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here, James and Hector. Nice to meet you as well. So, Johnny, you've uh, been a founder and exited, and we'd love to hear all about it. So maybe you could take us back to the start of your career through to Pouch. Yeah, it's crazy to think that we were able to exit the first company we started. So, yeah, let's start from the beginning. I went to Nottingham University and studied economics and and Chinese. And I thought I was going to be this big bridge between the two countries doing something cool (laughs) there. But also realized I didn't have any skills whatsoever, apart from maybe being able to chat reasonably well. So I joined Ernst & Young on their graduate scheme, like every brick economics graduate tends to do, and did three and a half years there in corporate finance. It was okay, but I always knew I wanted to start my own business, like I wouldn't say my parents are entrepreneurs, but they never worked in a corporate. They always kind of hustled and did their own thing. So the word boss was never used in my house. So it was always something I was like, definitely want to start my own thing, especially like being young and quite a high appetite for risk. I was always keen to do my own thing. So my first AEY, when they said, why are you here? Why do you want to qualify as an accountant? I said, I want to leave and start my own business. And my new manager was not happy with that answer <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> so yeah, it was a bit of a slog to get through that whole process. I always knew I wanted to start my own thing, but I'm more of an operator than a creative. Um, And I was very fortunate that a friend of mine from school was worth affiliate marketing industry and the co-founders. And he said, look, I've got this idea. Do you want to just have a game of table tennis and have a beer and talk about it? I was like, yeah, great. And he basically had the idea for Pouch laid out on the table already because he worked for this company called Yieldify, which started back in 2012, 13. And there software you may have seen it freeze and you had something in your basket and you went to click x on your browser their technology tracked your mouse movements and then this is all pre-gdpr and when you're about to exit they would give you a voucher code for you to convert so he simply thought if we can do this b2c there's a whole business we can build here he was a salesperson for you to find it was a real hassle getting all these pixels implemented on the website. So he thought if we can do what you if I do B2C without the need to speak to the retailers or do tech integrations, we can build a really good company here. That was pretty much the first conversation we had. So we did some research and found a company called Honey in America doing something very similar with a browser extension. You may have heard of Honey because they recently got acquired by PayPal for $4 billion. We did not get acquired for anywhere near that number. Um, It's just a crazy figure, but we saw it was being done in America. There's another company doing it in India. And we thought, okay, back ourselves. We know the space. 
why don't we try and do it in in the uk and so in 2016 whilst i was still at ey we set up the business and and, and try to launch pouch super interesting by the way at that time were there companies like my voucher codes and um, could you search proactively voucher codes sure yeah there were like all these voucher code companies existed but they had a really bad user experience i speak to people that work there that admit it because the way they make money is all seo based it's all rankings for keywords and google and all their infinite wisdom cannot tell if a voucher code is valid or not now it's changed because there's been a big shift towards user interest first but back in the day it was, can we rank for this keyword? We don't care if the voucher works or not, because as long as someone clicks on our link and buys something, we'll make commission. So the reason that Pouch hits such a nerve in a good way with the general public is that for anyone that had shopped online before, this was a problem that no one had actually thought to solve. Why don't we make a browser extension that sources all the voucher codes for you so you don't need to use these awful websites? Were you, were you guys on Dragon's Den? Because I downloaded so, it after seeing it there. You're one of, I think, 40,000 people that evening that did. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> we set up the business as in father into company, but we had no idea like what we were doing in terms of building a tech product. Like he was a salesman. I'm an accountant. We didn't have a tech CTO and we never built a product before. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to use Fiverr or were using Fiverr back in the day to hire any technical support, but we found this guy that said he was a JavaScript Chrome developer in India and said, we'll pay you a hundred quid to build this extension. Here's a list of codes. And he didn't speak to us for six weeks saying he broke his leg or something. We like, we, we, we didn't know what was going on, but we knew what we wanted it to look like. So we needed a, a technical co-founder and we looked at some agencies. I would compare that to having something wrong with your car and going to a dodgy mechanic. There's such a asymmetry of information. We had no clue if what they were saying to us was reasonable or not. They were saying, oh, the MVP will cost us 30,000 pounds. We're like, maybe it does. We just didn't know. And we didn't have the money to waste in that way. We had the idea. We had the business model. We knew how we wanted to monetize. And we had a pretty good roadmap, just like looking at our competitors in the US. There were a few others, Honey, Piggy, Cooper, a few others. And fortunately, we were introduced to uh, a guy called Vic, who became our third co-founder. And I don't know if the other episodes, if you've talked about like the structuring of how co-founders should be but other founders if they're the ceo and they've met their technical co-founder a while after they've given them like 10 percent of the business for us it was right if we're going to do this we're all equal partners doesn't matter that it's like our idea and our commercial model like we're all equal partners here so we did 33 33 33 with vic and i genuinely think that was like the best decision we made because it was a real we're all in this together attitude and when you're building something from scratch with no money and no experience, like just your glue is what's like going to be super, super important. So after we met Vic, we started trying to build an MVP. So he was very experienced. He'd worked in tech for 10 years already and was working at an agency. And he had some designer friends he knew. And so we kind of muddled together this MVP that was purely hosted on his laptop, put some videos up on YouTube. Like whenever someone new joins a team, I always give them an intro of what Pouch used to look like in 2016 to now. Like they love it. And uh, yeah, then we try to raise some money. So that's how we're really starting. Did you raise money before you were making any revenue or had you started to make some revenue and had some traction before you raised money? We raised money from a German angel investor that Vic knew through his kids' friend in the playground like just bizarre like 
he was quite a successful software entrepreneur and Vic's daughter and his son were friends and the wives got speaking and made the introduction and he became our angel investor and he invested 90,000 pounds with the promise to follow on with another 110 purely on the idea and the team. And the valuation was not, no, it was bad. <laughs> In hindsight, it was bad, but <laughs> we didn't know someone was willing to give us like as much money as I'd ever seen at the time. And we just were like grateful for the opportunity. And Part of me in my head was, this is a good idea, but every book you've ever read, is, you always fail your first one, you always fail your first one. So I just went into the whole thing thinking, this is just a learning exercise. Like I'll do six months, maybe it will last a year, and then I'll go traveling and get a job like at a VC or something. Like, I had no idea. So yeah, we raised before we had anything really, just on the idea. And it's really interesting, that story of raising money. It shows great hustle, I think, money from such a random place. And I have a friend who probably three four years ago set up a company and he got on a flight out the holiday this was just like a budget flight sat next to a guy they got talking he's the kind of guy who just gets talking to people sat next to him on flights they were talking business and by the end of the flight the guy sat next to him had committed 150k as the first ticket into this company incredible incredible yeah it wasn't easy yeah. was it it must have been ba like That's, premium yeah, economy or something <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah and maybe yeah. the moral of the story is always fly business class <laughs> or always be pitching you don't know who you're gonna meet i was always happy to tell anyone about the business and people were like oh are you scared that someone's gonna steal your idea i was like no like how hard it is to actually make something happen like not yeah, at all it's completely true I, I think that's like one of the common sort of founder naiveties when they're starting out yeah it's just a slight step backwards so you've gone <laughs> through the first process you've put together your team you've got angel investment and you're now building the product when did you realize we've got something when did you feel like you had like product market fit and what was that feeling like and what metric made you think that that didn't come for a long time, but in terms of, I guess you maybe call it like our first win, we got onto a, a now defunct accelerator program called Mass Challenge. It was an American accelerator that was a non-for-profit that just wanted to see impact. So all the on there were like health tech, ed tech, it didn't really work in the UK. That's why they're now defunct, but we were on their program as a three-month program the standard 15,000 Amazon web service credits or all, all of that stuff and a competition. It was the second year they run it in the UK. And the idea was that you pitched your business and then there was a, a final round and there was a prize pool of 250,000 that got split up between the businesses or 500,000. So the year before one business won 75 grand, we were like happy with anything. So we won mass challenge in that out of the hundred businesses on the program, I think it was 5,000 applicants a hundred got onto the program and then we were one of the top 10 winners of mass challenge, which was great. They had a big fancy award ceremony. I think Brett Hoverman from made.com came and spoke as like the final judge. We got into Forbes and TechCrunch and raised our profile quite a lot just by doing that. And at the time we probably only had two or 300 users, like basically everyone in our accelerator program, because <laughs> we hadn't started doing any marketing or anything. So that was the first tick to say okay maybe there is some demand for this product because these industry experts have said yeah we like what you're doing there's definitely like a big enough market for you to attack and, and uh, yeah that was our first win that's when we first thought we're onto something but our first breakthrough really was dragon's den so after mass challenge we got that press we were contacted by the bbc so we'd only officially launched the product in september 16 the same day that mass challenge started 
I only left EY 1st of Jan 17. And then we'd only raised 95,000 pounds. And you guys know, like that goes nowhere. We couldn't afford to do Facebook ads. We couldn't afford to do any of these things. And we weren't paying ourselves anything either, 500 pound a month. We could basically just afford to try and hire some good people, pay designers and just wait for an opportunity. And Dragon's Den was this opportunity. So BBC contacted us very much X Factor. They look for good and bad companies. They're making a TV show at the end of the day. We weren't sure which category we fitted into at the time. <laughs> My co-founder was terrified of going on and becoming like a nervous, sweaty meme that people, <laughs> guy that just totally fails on the TV. Like that's all he cared about, not the offers. I just don't, I don't want to become a meme. So we went through the application process pretty quick and we found out that we were going to be recording our episode on May the 7th, 2017. And we didn't know when the episode would be aired, even if we did well. So we, we got our original angel to commit to another 50,000 out of better valuation than our first round. So when we went into the den and they said, oh, you'd made like a few hundred credit and had two and a half thousand users. Why are you valuing yourselves at X, whatever it was? We could say, oh, actually someone's just invested in this. We're giving you a discount because we really want your support. And then that kind of clears off that question that usually trips people up when they're a non-revenue business. So we just wanted to put up that every question they, they asked us answer to and that funding and valuation one is often one you get which is really stupid because in america yeah. like on shark tank they'll be like oh you're in one retail store and you've made a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars yeah let's value you at two million and just go for it it's just a totally different ball game recorded the episode and we got five offers which was the first time in 15 years that had happened that every single dragon wanted to put in we were like totally blown away and we also knew that we were going to have a really good TV spot. When Did you think you were going to turn into a meme, but for all the right reasons? Turn into a meme for all the right reasons, for <laughs> flirting with Deborah Meaden and then telling her no. And BBC Two made a meme saying when he showers you with compliments and chooses the other girl, it was, it was brilliant. So it wasn't market fit, but it was still another bit of validation that, okay, these people that see all these businesses, even though the show is a TV show, Give us the confidence that users and general consumer digital marketing to say five offs and dragons. And it's like, right, we're always going to have this no matter what happens. That can be our, our hook. And today, four years on, it's still our best performing Facebook and Instagram and whatever ads that we run, like just having that tagline, which is crazy when you think about it. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And so post Dragon's Den, post finding product market fit and getting yeah. lots of downloads and, and seeing some success. What did you set your sights on over the next few years back then? Were you thinking, okay, let's do this for a few years, let's get an exit? Or were you thinking, let's build a billion pound business here? Me and my co-founder were both at loggerheads with this because we very quickly fell into the classic startup money trap. We had a skill set of finance operations, sales, tech, even product at this stage, but we didn't have anyone that was really experienced in digital marketing. And we just didn't understand how long and expensive and how much testing you need to do. So when the episode aired, like end of August, we'd raise 95, 50. And then, and then we were like, right, this is going to be our proper seed round. We, we raised another 180. So we had quite a lot of money in the bank. So the episode went live. We got like 40,000 users overnight. Suddenly we're making, you know, a decent run rate from having nothing to something. We're like, great, we're going to be like billionaires here. But our product wasn't right yet. Like we had a really high churn. There were lots of bugs. We'd try to build stuff far too quickly. And we didn't lose all of those users. And, you know, we've had users that still say we've been used from that day, but we weren't mature enough to capitalize 
or really we didn't have the analytics in place to see where our leaky bucket was leaking. So you can imagine August, we've had, end of August, we've had this thing, September, October, November, December, you're into like traditional shopping peak. Our numbers every month just going up and up. It's like incredible. Come January and February, we've hired a lot of people. We're ready to go. Users stop coming in because we don't have our loops and our funnels worked out because we just didn't know what, what those were. And that whole year was basically spent preparing for a TV show and capitalizing on it. Our burn rate was up. Our February numbers were like half of our October numbers. So in terms of like a growth story, data of up, up, down, and then down again. I always said this business, like if it fails, it's not going to be because it runs out of money. So, you know, slow down the burn, slow down the marketing. And this is when I said, I don't necessarily think we have product market fit at the time because of this, if we would have just kept going up, we would have had our loops and everything sorted to the point where we just keep growing. So come to February, March, we're actually in a bit of a pickle because even though we had like a few hundred grand in the bank, we didn't know how to spend that effectively to get to that next stage. We didn't have enough data and the revenues weren't impressive enough to get VCs interested. We didn't have the honey exit to point to and say, look, with the honey in the UK, like just invest in us. Like there wasn't an exit in the space we're talking about. So we, yeah, we were in a rock and a hard place of not knowing really what direction to, to, to go. We thought what we need is a corporate partner rather than a VC. And also like we could have gone back to angels, but maybe call it a confidence thing, not knowing. Now my mindset's take half a million quid or a million quid of people without really knowing how I was going to deploy that money. Just like from a moral perspective, more than anything else. We started doing a crowdfund. We could have raised half a million quid on a crowdfund, like from our current users, from our angels, whatever it may be. But again, I was like, it's half a million enough. Like I, I was thinking really we need two or three million here. And I didn't think we'd be able to do that. It's all small numbers, but I'm just building up our experience over, over time. You know, James, from the rounds that you raised with Pringle Capital, I'm sure these numbers seem insignificant now, but for us at the time, it was like trying to raise 2 million is a, a massive feat with no track record one year in business. Have you heard of News UK? They approached us when we'd gone through the list of VCs that would be kind of series A. There were a couple that were interested, but by the time we have run out of money and they were doing something called the startup lab, where they were looking at companies that would save their users money that they could help grow. And there were three businesses on this, us, a company called Swipey, which do white labeled rewards for like restaurants and stuff. And another company called look after my bills, which also went on Dragon's Den and actually were sold to go compare to us since going on the show. So we were all on this with News UK. And for us, we thought this was perfect. The metrics they're looking at are different to a VC in terms of the potential of the market and everything else. We spent three months working with them and they were meant to put in a million pounds into the business and like give us tens of millions a year in free advertising because it was worth them doing it. Every user of pouch that they acquire, they'll get 50% of the revenue and it's really cheap for them to acquire users, just keep running banner ads or whatever it may be. The model was solid, but I don't know if either of you have ever dealt with a corporate in any way to get money out of them before. Yeah, we tried a suggestive and uh, it was a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. But we actually never took any in the end, but we spoke to a number of big like TV networks and stuff about strategic investment. And it was quite, yeah, quite a bad experience. It was very slow and we didn't get anything out of it in the end. Exactly the same, right? It was this whole glossy, 
thing. These three companies going through this process, Swipey were out quite quickly, but they wanted to invest and look after your bills and look after my bills and pouch. So we're like, keen, we want to invest. On the day that they are meant to sign legal paperwork, they halve the back of my bills. And for pouch, they say, no, we need six more months to make a decision. And we're like, why? You've spent probably hundreds of thousands of pounds hiring consultants to run this program for you because they got external help. Like tens of thousands in hours. Like we were having meetings with the COO, the CFO, everyone apart from Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks, basically. Like they were in the office next door to us when we were talking to the CFO. And what's the point? Like we've wasted our time. We spent three months trying to go through this process to get investment. And it's just been a, a total nightmare for everyone involved. We kind of left licking our wounds. It was like very painful because we'd put not all our eggs in one basket, but this was our funding route. And we thought this is what, what made the most sense as well. So if you think about the history of the company, you know, we exited the company two years after starting. Started mid-2016, got some traction beginning of 2017, went on the Dragon's Den in May 17, went live August 17, kind of in trouble <laughs> March, really, really in trouble July 18. And then six months later, we've been acquired by Global Savings Group. And that was just, just you never know what's going to be around, around the corner. So how did that come about? So we've actually had a couple of people on the show and it's always interesting to ask them about like the first engagement with the acquiring company. Like, did they call you? Was it a chance meeting? Did they email you? Was it like, we want to buy your company from straight away? Or was it kind of a strategic kind of softly coursing process? How did it all come together? Yeah, I've kind of replayed this a lot in, in, in my head in like the, the recent past, but what we were doing with News UK was a solid commercial idea for any media company with an audience. White label the pouch browser extension, do a revenue share using all the traffic you have because you're bad at monetizing your traffic as a media company. News UK put out a press release about their lab and the companies on it and what they were doing. Daily Mail picked up this press release. Daily Mail run what is now, I think, the largest voucher code website in the UK via their partner, Global Savings Group. Global Savings Group are a German startup who, at the time, they ran white-label voucher code websites for media companies all over the world, CNN, Business Insider, Daily Mail, Metro. They got in touch with us whilst we were on the lab. We couldn't speak to them because we had a non-compete. But as soon as we were out of this process, as soon as we were out of the process, or not out of the process because they said we need another six months, but we just said we're not waiting six months, we're going off to do other stuff now. We said, okay, let's take a meeting. And so we met with... What I now knew was the CEO, but I actually didn't know he was a CEO. I just thought he was like their manager in the UK, or at least like one of the co-founders, because he was so young, <laughs> which just shows I shouldn't, yeah, shouldn't judge. We met them in their office in London, and he said, tell us about yourselves. And we were very frank and very honest and said, look, like we've just been totally screwed over by this big media company. We've just done our R&D tax claim. So we got 80 grand back in the bank. So we let some people go after New UK failed. So we kind of break even we weren't burning through too much cash and we said we've just been screwed over we're just trying to find our feet and look for our next opportunity very honest very open wasn't trying to hide anything and i think they really respected that like we didn't know why they thought maybe it's a partnership just let's try and get back out into the startup world and see what's going on how we've been screwed over by this media company and they like loads of media companies trying to close these white label contracts so they knew the exact pain that we'd gone through and I guess we've bonded over a mutual hate of News UK. <laughs> That's good to hear. 
But it's always a sure, yeah. founder on who doesn't have the corporate communication policies. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you speak for many companies who've been through similar as well. So there, News UK should take note. I've um, spoken to the founder of Tab. Yeah, uh, no. Jack Rivlin. Yeah, because he said the whole thing ended up being a bit of a nightmare. He says he wishes they just bought him at the time. But sorry, just mutual founders going through bad experiences with media <laughs> companies. So after having the first meeting, how did that then lead to dry ink on a on an acquisition? So we went into a bit of due diligence with them because they thought they wanted to potentially partner with us, maybe even invest. Um, we spent about six weeks in due diligence. Then we flew out to Munich to meet them and the rest of the team. And it was after a day of kind of management interviews, they said at the end of the meeting, actually, we want to buy you. They proposed quite a complex deal at the time, which took a while for us to simplify into what became as much an acquire as an acquisition. They wanted the product. They wanted the team. They wanted speed. We wanted investors or a time for ourselves and everyone. So it was kind of like a perfect situation. And since we've been acquired, we've grown more than 100% year on year for the almost three years I've been there now. So a very happy ending from two and a bit year period. So you're still there. And do you think you might go back to being a founder one day? And if so, what would you do differently? And what advice would you give to others that are thinking of taking the leap? I 100% want to start another business. People kept saying after we sold, like, when are you doing the next one? When are you doing the next? You know, we had a deal where we couldn't leave for six months. And they're a brilliant company. I was, I, you know, very happy there. And I thought maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do a year and see where we go. So I applied for Entrepreneur First, which I know Ash was on the podcast very recently. And I just thought this is a really good space for a non-technical founder to, to get into. Very difficult to get into, but I thought I had the skill sets to, to, to do it. So I applied and I actually got on and um, ready to go. But then we were talking about what the plans for Pouch were. And effectively, kind of similar to someone raising a Series A, they said, this is what your budget's going to be. You've got autonomy. You've got an, an, an advocate within the business that's going to be your manager, effectively like your VC board member. Go, just grow as quick as you can. Um, and actually, that made me think to do that with the product. We got it pretty much from zero to one. And then we were acquired. We never got to go past that. So that was like a very exciting proposition and glad I've done that with the company, but definitely want to start again and do something else. Three pieces of advice. First is like always raise more money than you need. I wish I'd had the confidence to raise two or three million pounds off the bat for our first business. That's definitely what's changed for the next one. It won't be so much, oh, do this as a favor to a young kid. It's actually... We've got a proven track record. We learned a huge amount and there aren't that many exited founders that say, I've done it once, I'm ready to do it again, that you could put your money into. Most people, it's still their first businesses or they fail two or three times. And obviously there's a huge amount of, of learning you're going to get in, in, in that failing, but there's also a huge amount of learning you get in success. So I would raise a much bigger round for my next company and target, I would say, a bit better in terms of choosing an industry where the addressable market you can point to trillions and billions in revenue straight away rather than online voucher codes where there is a big market but it's as a newcomer it's you, you've got to capture most of it to, to make a lot of money the second thing is get your analytics straight away i talked about our leaky bucket problem we did not have good analytics and any large b2c business with so many different touch points installs activation rates like all these complicated metrics 
it's still a challenge to have them all very neatly in, in, in an actionable way. Please don't do it alone. I'm so grateful for the co-founders that I had. Maybe James, that's why you've got Hector now for season two and you're going to carry on doing it because it probably makes it a lot easier, right? A lot more fun and yeah, great having new energy and ideas and everything. And yeah, it's like having a co-founder for the podcast. It's great. You know, I'm, I'm like an extroverted person. I bounce off different people. Like I need, I need a partner in, in, in crime in that sense. So to have another co-founder or another two co-founders is definitely the way to go, in my opinion, as long as you have very clear decision-making frameworks, because we never had a CEO as such, because I was control of the checkbook and raising money and all the rest. And I guess making the hard decisions, that was my role, but maybe we should have changed that, but it worked for us at the time. Definitely times where if it was someone, this is my domain, this is my clear decision, it would have made things like a lot quicker and a lot less painful to make decisions. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Great bits of advice there for anyone thinking of jumping ship and starting a company. Really interesting. So Johnny, we're, we're there on time. I'm sure we could talk about lots more. There's things we haven't managed to touch on, but it's been great chatting to you. We like to round these up with a, a game where we ask people to select three people that they'd like to have business lunch with or dinner with. So who would that be for you? I said her name already on the podcast. So she was a few years above me at university. And I think what with Entrepreneur First is just incredible as a program. Like people say, how do you innovate in venture capital? Well, they've definitely done it successfully. So just to pick her brain about how to build a culture and a, a really high performing organization, she'd be great. Someone high up in government, like maybe someone like Michael Gove. I don't know, just to ask all the questions about the COVID situation that I haven't got any answers on, get a few bottles of red wine and someone and like really find out what's happened over the last 18 months, because I'm sure it would be absolutely shocking if you really delve deep into it. And then I finished his book the other week and I've got a lot of questions for him. So Steve Bartlett, who Happy Sexy Millionaire, like that book was really good. And I've just got a lot of notes. I want to run by him <laughs> on what I found. So I think, yeah, those are the three people I'd like to, to get drunk at lunch with. Awesome. Yeah, you've got yeah, three points for originality. Anyone who's interested, go and check out Alice's episode, which was out a couple of weeks ago. Thanks so much, Johnny, for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. Great insight there into what it takes to start a company, some of the challenges, love the honesty, and then a good outcome as well. It's very exciting. I wouldn't be an entrepreneur for a shout out for anyone that doesn't have it. Please vouch browser extension. It automatically finds all the best voucher pages and applies them automatically at the checkout page. Black Friday coming up. You need our browser extension to help save you probably 50 pounds a month. So uh, go install it now. Awesome. Great way to wrap things up. Thanks so much. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Cheers, Johnny. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Riding Unicorns. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you want to receive episodes direct to your inbox, go to ridingunicorns.substack.com and subscribe on there as well. See you next time.